Welcome to the Da Vinci Hour, a podcast series that interviews individuals across the field of medicine to help provide an inside look into their experiences and provide insight on how to navigate the journey of becoming a physician. My name is Dr. Maxwell Cooper, and I will be your host. This podcast is brought to you by Da Vinci Academy, a medical education company that provides online video courses, outline format books, and clinical case videos for students studying the medical basic sciences. You can check out all that Da Vinci Academy has to offer at www.dviacademy.com. All right, everybody, welcome back to the Da Vinci Hour podcast. Uh, I'm here this week with Dr. Todd Hanna, a oral and maxillofacial surgeon uh, in New York City. So Dr. Hanna, thank you for joining uh, the podcast. Happy to have you here. Great. Thanks, Maxwell. Thank you for having me. Excited. Of course, of course. Um, maybe give us a little background on your educational and training path, how you got to where you are uh, today. So my background, uh, my educational background after college uh, is, is started in dental school. Um, so I, I'm a native New Yorker. I went to NYU for college and then after college um, went to dental school uh, knowing I wanted to do oral maxillofacial surgery, but, but uh, starting in dental school. Um, from there, I went into residency, um, which is a combined medical degree and six-year uh, oral maxillofacial surgery residency program at University of Alabama at Birmingham, not far away from where you are uh, in Atlanta. Um, so I, I spent six years there, uh, including the medical school. Uh, from there, did a, I did one fellowship in Baltimore in uh, head and neck surgery and microvascular reconstruction um, based, you know, oncologic reconstruction. In, uh, in Baltimore, Maryland, at University of Maryland Shock Trauma. Uh, and that is a fellowship that is uh, for, mostly for oral maxillofacial surgeons that wanna get into head and neck and microvascular. Um, so when I was done that, with that fellowship, looking for a job, I came across an opportunity to uh, do a second fellowship with the otolaryngology department in full scope head and neck surgery, everything from thyroid to skull base and begin my reconstruction career uh, back here in New York at Northwell uh, Lenox Hill Hospital, which is part of Northwell Health System. Um, and so after that fellowship, I stayed on as uh, a volunteer faculty status at Lenox Hill Northwell. I did probably the majority of the head and neck and facial reconstruction over the last seven years, um, but also started my private practice. And in private practice, you know, my scope was a bit different, but in the hospital setting, I was largely doing the microvascular reconstruction. Um, so that's really how it evolved. Gotcha. Yeah, that's, that's pretty cool. So it sounds like you do a wide variety of cases and I definitely want to get into that. I'm curious that that fellowship at shock trauma, that had to be one wild experience. I'm sure you saw all kinds of traumas. And then on top of it, like you said, a lot of oncologic reconstruction, I'm sure, I'm sure that was a, a yeah, standout yeah. experience. <laughs> there, obviously there was a lot of trauma that came in, but, but, um, unless they were getting a free flap, like a microvascular flap, I didn't, I didn't have to manage it. Uh, but interestingly at Birmingham, in Birmingham, the trauma experiences was pretty insane. I think university of Alabama, uh, UAB uh, trauma experience is, is as busy as anywhere. Um, 
so I, I had gotten a lot of that there. At Shock Trauma, we were doing a lot of the, the free flaps for some trauma patients. So, you know, gunshot wounds or some massive defect, we, we would do the microvascular part for that. Uh, but it, Baltimore is a crazy town. I don't know if you've been or not, but uh, <laughs> yeah, all sorts of stuff would walk through the door there. I'm sure. I'm sure I can imagine. Um, and so now uh, you're in private practice, like you said, and then you, you know, you, it sounds like you're also, are you still on staff at, at Lenox Hill? So it seems like yeah. you're kind of a mix of both your private practice world and then maybe some more like academic or private demic aspect to your yeah. practice. Wait, 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 wait. Uh, I'm also on faculty at Mount Sinai um, and I'm just starting uh, to bring cases there. And, uh, you know, my, my, my scope is kind of uh, transitioned to, you know, I always had an, a strong interest in aesthetic reconstruction, aesthetic surgery, uh, the face and jaws. And my scope of practice has kind of evolved into much more aesthetics, uh, you know, chin, chin aesthetic surgery, jawline surgery, neck aesthetics, uh, double jaw surgery, uh, facial implants, things like that. So that's the bulk of my, my practice at the moment. And then I still do a fair amount of reconstruction uh, in terms of microvascular and, and other types of flaps, but it's evolved to be much more into the, to the aesthetic procedures. Very cool. Very cool. I guess for the listeners who maybe are a little bit naive to the field of oral and maxillofacial surgery, you know, for me, like my personal experience, I saw an oral surgeon, like I'm sure most people do, they got their wisdom teeth taken out when they were a kid. And, but it sounds like clearly from what you're telling me, it's a much more broad and complex field than just uh, doing, you know, maybe surgeries like that in the office. Maybe give us maybe a broad overview of, of the field, if you will. Yeah, it can be. Um, I think the, beauty, the beautiful thing about it uh, as a profession, as a specialty, is that you really have a lot of opportunity. You know, there, I have colleagues that really just want to do more standard oral surgery procedures, wisdom teeth, dental implants. Um, maybe a jaw surgery uh, here and there, and they're very happy with that lifestyle. And there's, that's a, that's an awesome thing. In fact, that's the majority of people that come out of training, and you can't blame them because they're fun procedures, they're high satisfaction procedures where patients are happy and do well, and you know you can make a living and enjoy enjoy your life. Um, I've always been a little bit more on the the uh, I guess the to, you know, what is it, sadist or something. I, I kind of like to torture myself a little bit. I always <laughs> try to do uh, the things that were the most challenging. So uh, if you want to do more advanced procedures, you can do additional training, you can do additional fellowships. Um, and those will open up the door for, you know, more complex, if you will, procedures. Gotcha. Gotcha. Now I'm curious, you know, you mentioned your path involved going to dental school and then also medical school. Is that, is that a requirement that you have to do both dental school and med school? And then is, I guess, maybe walk us through like the standard pathway towards uh, oral and maxillofacial surgery. So, um, so just a little history on it. So the surgery, you know, if you go back to probably early 1900s, um, this the specialty really developed as uh, plastic and oral surgery and it was actually a group of dentists that would um, really largely treat uh, you know wounded veterans facially wounded veterans um, that's that group of, of special specialist dentists if you will diverged and they became 
oral maxillofacial surgery and plastic and reconstructive surgery. And that's where the specialty really became its own, you know, its own thing, uh, somewhat as we know it today. And those will, the oral maxillofacial surgery were largely exodontists. They, were, they would take out teeth and they would do trauma, again, on uh, wounded veterans, things like that. Um, over the years, the specialty evolved as all specialties do to incorporate other types of surgeries like cleft and craniofacial, facial aesthetics, uh, head and neck cancer, microvascular reconstruction, trauma, uh, or you know, high level trauma. Um, so those became um, subspecialties that you can get into, but you can also, you more classically can get into a lot of those subspecialties from plastics and reconstruction, or even from ENT, uh, head and neck surgery. So um, the specialty, again, uh, began to evolve, and I'd say probably in like 1950s or so, uh, there's a little bit of debate as to where the first dual degree program came from. Some people believe it was actually University of Alabama uh, by the, chair, the chairman, of, the late chairman, Scotty McCallum, who since, who recently passed away. Um, but he, he uh, is thought to potentially develop the first dual degree. And he was an oral surgery resident at UAB. He graduated dental school from Tufts. And then uh, during his med school, he wanted, during his uh, residency, he wanted to get a medical degree. So he kind of laid out the groundwork for going to medical school. Um, that's one story. Some people say it may have been someone in Dallas that had the first dual degree program. So it's a bit debatable, um, but uh, essentially at around that time, the doors opened to, to obtain a dual degree, but it was elective, right? So you didn't have to do it. Most people didn't want to do the extra couple of years uh, because they didn't, need, they didn't feel they needed it. As the years progressed, more programs became dual degree optional and then dual degree required. So now at, at the current moment, and the statistic may be a bit dated, but I believe it's about 50-50, meaning half the programs are dual degree and half the programs are single degree, meaning some, you just have a dental degree. Um, you know, this, the, the scope of those practices kind of varies. Like, there are some of these single degree practices that have a really awesome scope and do a lot of really intense stuff. Um, and then there are some dual degree pro uh, programs that really have a more private practice type scope, which is a little more limited. Um, but for the most part, if you really want to do the broader scope, it's probably better to do the dual degree. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. And then it sounds like you, do you have to do enough, uh, some general surgery training in there or is it more just kind of like a intern year in the, in the general surgery department? Yeah. So we do a general surgery year. We do actually an intern year. Um, and that, that's kind of evolved a little bit over the recent years because a lot of programs are becoming like, uh, you know, like for example, uh, vascular surgery, you cannot now do or endovascular and vascular, you can now do uh, direct residency for those, right? Whereas in the past, you would have to do a general surgery residency. Um, so a lot of the programs are evolving and a lot of those intern years for gen surgery are changing. Um, even, even residencies like ENT, at every program, they don't always do that general surgery year or they have very little general surgery um, time. Uh, I did, you know, in my program at that time, we did eight months of general surgery and then four months of anesthesia. 
So uh, the general surgery eight months would be, we were a non-categorical intern, just like the rest of, of everybody else. And we would do all the rotations, right? Um, the four months of anesthesia, we would spend really uh, working with the anesthesiologist, intubating, pushing meds, you know, all that. Um, and the reason why we do it that way is because part of our specialty involves a lot of office-based uh, sedation. You know, we do our own IV sedation classically um, and that prepares us for that. You know? Gotcha. Okay. And then is it, it sounds like from you telling me most people don't do fellowships after, after they graduate or, or is that, I guess, how, or is that becoming maybe more common in, in more recent years or? I'd have to look at the numbers. Um, I'd say most don't, uh, clearly most don't. Um, I, if I had to speculate, maybe, you know, 5% will do a fellowship. And, and again, it's usually it's people that are really geared towards academia um, and hospital-based careers, but not always, you know, kind of like myself. Gotcha. Uh, like that, so. Okay. And I guess maybe tell us a little bit more about the like head and neck and microvascular aspects. I think that's really cool. And you did a whole fellowship in that. And then is that, did you do that fellowship with maybe some plastic surgeons, ENT surgeons as well? And, and have like, was there some overlap, I guess, in those procedures with, with what those specialties do? Um, so the, the uh, program in Maryland where I did the microvascular training uh, was it's a, it was an OMS fellowship and, you know, we were doing at the time, we were doing the majority of the flaps for the entire ENT and OMFS um, uh, uh, resident, you know, programs, but we worked very closely with the ENT program uh, and they had a couple uh, flap surgeons, one facial plastics, one head and neck train. And, um, and I would work with them as a fellow. And then I would work with my, my attendings, my microvascular attendings. So we had, we had a really good relationship and I learned great things from, from working with people from different specialties. Um, when I came to Lenox Hill for the second fellowship, I had already had that microvascular training. So I started, I started actually doing flaps as a fellow. Um, oh, wow. my first flap about middle of my, my fellow, my fellowship years, the second fellow, uh, the second fellowship. Um, and I worked a little bit with the plastics guys at Lenox Hill, but uh, largely I kind of just developed my own my own thing there. Um, you know, I have to say back in residency at UAB, we did a, a lot of the free flaps as well. We were very busy there and worked very well with the ENT uh, and plastics departments there. So I'd come into the first fellowship with 40 to 50 free flaps, you know, for, as first assist on them. So oh, wow. a lot of comfort. Yeah, a lot of comfort going in. Awesome. Awesome. So I guess now would you, how would you describe your, if you could ballpark it, even your split between, you know, maybe traditional OMFS aesthetic surgery, and then, uh, this, you know, microvascular and reconstruction surgery. Yeah. It's a, it's a good question. Um, because I constantly try to assess it myself and it seems to change, you know, year by year, but I'd say at the moment, I'm probably about 80% aesthetic face and jaw surgery, whether it's, um, you know, genioplasty, chin implants, jawline implants, neck lifts, uh, cheek implants, double jaw surgery, you know, anything in that realm. It's probably about 80% that. Um, and then uh, probably about 20% head and neck reconstruction. And that's my, 
my hospital or surgical kind of practice. Um, and so like the, the aesthetic surgery you do that, is that exclusively part of your, your private practice? And then for your, for your private practice, or do you run out of like an outpatient surgery center or do you do it like in house at your own office? Or I guess, how does that all work? Yeah, so uh, we have a we have a outpatient surgery center that we can use. I don't always have the need to. I do most of the stuff in my own office. Um, I have operatories here. I have the ability to sedate my own patients, or I can bring in an anesthesiologist to do this, do the, the sedation uh, or anesthesia. Um, I work closely with with some colleagues that have op- full oper- operatories uh, for general anesthesia, so I can always. Um, do combined cases in those settings. And then I could also, I could also bring patients to the hospital for outpatient, uh, outpatient treatment. Um, but it's a, most of it I do in the office. In my own gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. What, what would you say your typical week split is between like, you know, procedures, surgeries in your office, clinic time, you know, seeing patients in the outpatient setting, and then your reconstructive cases at the, at the hospital. Uh, so at the moment, I'm, uh, you know, I do, um, I do three to four days. So about three days where I'm actually seeing patients or treating patients in the office. Uh, I get about half a day of administration to catch up on notes and then a day and a half to two days uh, a week in the hospital doing either, you know, jaw surgery or head and neck reconstruction. Um, it's nice when I have that that half a day or so to catch up on notes. Otherwise, it's during the weekend, um, you need the the administration time. Yeah, I I can imagine <laughs> that's a pretty busy clinical schedule. Do yeah. you? What is your call like? Do you do you take call at one of the hospitals in in New York? And I guess when you are on call, what uh, like what type of cases do you typically see? Uh, we get we get so I take uh, I take I believe it's it's uh, four weeks a year at Lenox Hill, and then. Uh, I'll be on the call schedule at Mount Sinai, um, so I get to get that one. Uh, it's largely trauma or odontogenic abscesses or infections. So uh, anyone that has like a facial swelling from a bad tooth or uh, facial fractures, uh, things like that. Gotcha. And I'm curious, you know, for people thinking about, you know, going out on their own or joining a private practice is is taking call at hospitals like how you do or, or multiple hospitals, is that kind of part of earning your operating privileges at those places? Is that? It's part of, of the agreement that, you know, you, you can operate there, but you have to take call. That's how most places do it. Some people have a setup where they actually get paid to take call. Um, you know, I have heard of that. That's not how, how it is here, at least. <laughs> at least for me. So. <laughs> gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, when, when starting a private practice, you know, you know, are you a solo practitioner or are you, do you have partners that you work with? And I guess can maybe kind of walk us through how you, you know, cause you spend all this time in academic centers and then you venture out either on your own or you join a group. What, like how can maybe tell us a little bit of your story about that or how you got started in private practice. So, um, so I always, you know, I wanted to be a surgeon since I was a kid. Um, and I, my primary goal the reason I went the route I did, I learned about oral maxillofacial as like a teenager reading an art, I was reading an article in the, in the New York uh, University paper. And I was like, that's what I'm gonna do. So I went into college knowing what I was going to do. My brother was going to dental school. So you know, he's my older brother. So I kind of followed his footsteps a little bit there. Um, but I always 
knew I wanted to do surgery and, and particularly facial surgery. Um, when I got into uh, residency, I really felt strongly about having an academic career, which is why I really um, pursued the fellowships, right? I didn't even just do one, I did two. So it's kind of crazy that I didn't go into an academic career. What I found was when I was out and I was interviewing at great places, you know, I, I was close to taking a job at UPenn. The, uh, the full-time faculty at Lenox Hill offered me a position where I'd be full-time within the, the health system. But what I found when I was negotiating with these contracts um, that for the amount of time that I trained, and as hard as I trained and the sacrifices and moving to these different places for the best programs that I could get into and things like that. Um, I really felt uh, that, I, that I didn't want to like be in student debt forever. You know, I had, I had a tremendous amount of student debt. You know, I finished training in, at 36 and kind of had like a short period of window where I could kind of make enough money to pay those off and still have a life, right? Like own a home and things like that. Also like the, you know, the politics in the academic setting can sometimes be a little bit of a deterrent. Let's be real, right? The, the politics is, isn't always the best. When I, when I got out of training, I just couldn't bring myself to kind of sign those contracts. So I, I kind of, uh, I guess somewhere in me all along, I knew I kind of wanted to create my own brand, my own practice. So uh, I negotiated a contract with, to, to join another surgeon as an associate. And he just, you know, wasn't a, you know, wasn't really an honest situation. Uh, so I didn't sign that contract and I just opened my own practice. I had, a, I kind of did it on a whim because one of the things that was happening during that contract negotiation, as I was finishing my fellowship year, the second fellowship, getting close to the end, the contract seemed to be really stretched out. Uh, you know, they would slow things down, so so to speak. And then I found that I was still getting, I was past the point of graduation. I still didn't have a signed contract agreement. And then I really felt pressure to start making money. And I think that was probably somewhat strategic uh, on their part. Um, so what I did is I started to look for different avenues pretty early. And I found an opportunity where I could work out of these uh, these other oral surgeons' office. So in a sense, I would in a sense I would rent space from them, um, and they, you know, good guys. They they had a they had a big office in Midtown Manhattan, and um, we worked out something that was fair. And I just put up a website and started started just grinding. You know, it was really quite. Uh, it was it was a bit of a frightening time because I didn't know where where I, where I was going to land. Um, but I also didn't say no to any of the cases that they were, that were coming to me from the hospital. That's the one thing I did that probably was one of the biggest uh, elements in, in the practice growing. I never said no, I, no matter what, no problem, I'll be there. It's, you know, it's a fungal reconstruction, no problem. Scalp reconstruction, no problem. Nose, no problem. Tongue, no problem. Like I just, I just did the case. Um, and, you know, within the, within the first couple of years, probably the first three or four years, I had, you know, somewhere around 150 free flaps, 100% success rate of them, microvascular success rate, never lost a free flap to this day. Um, so they were giving me more and more and I would just keep doing them. Um, it became hard to really build a private practice and do those, those big cases 
you know, because to, to wear both hats became hard. So over the last year or two, I really kind of leaned down in the reconstructive stuff so that I could focus a little bit more on the practice and the aesthetics, um, which is the part that's really been growing the most. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah. That's interesting. You know, I've, I've heard from some others as well, the similar type of things. I think I forget it's three A's, right? Be available, be affable. And I think able is the last, the last A. And, uh, you know, I think that speaks to people think it's kind of a cush, easy life, but really from what you're telling me and then from what I've heard from others is you really need to, you know, especially when you're first starting out, like get your name out there, give your cell phone number out to referring docs, you know, make yourself like, just like how you described, be very available for, you know, any type of console and not, not, and be averse to saying no to consults, if you will. And also you, you have to take risks. You know, um, if I look back, there were num- a number of cases that I did that if I was giving advice to someone, I would tell them not to do. It's <laughs> like severely comorbid patient, you know, and, and risky case and radiated patients and things like that. But um, when, when I really think about it, those risks and those cases, and being not willing to be, like you said, available um, is really probably what, what separated me a little bit, gave me the ability to build what we're building here. So. Gotcha. I'm curious, uh, you know, one of the, there's some IR uh, physicians, you know, in my field, they kind of run their own, even solo practices or even solar out, solo outpatient uh, procedure labs, if you will. And they talk a lot about like, you know, taking a, you know, referring docs out to dinner or like, you know, make going, literally going door to door, if you will. And, and, uh, you know, introducing themselves, even their card out. Did you have to do any of that? Like with maybe like general dentists or other type of like primary care referrals, uh, for, for your practice? It's not, it's not really like the model that, that we have here. Um, you know, um, I don't, there's a guy named Dennis Krause who he's a pretty renowned guy in the ENT head and neck, uh, world. And he was one of the guys that did my fellowship. I did my second fellowship with him and um, became one of my you know, best friends and great mentor. Uh, even to this day, we're, we're very close. And I started doing a lot of the reconstructions with him. So I couldn't have done any of this without him opening a lot of doors for me. Um, but then, then again, I took, when he offered an, an opportunity, I, I took it and I never said no, even to the risky ones. Um, so that was a big part of how I developed the, the head and neck scope or that I had, um, the microvascular stuff, I mean. And then for the oral surgery and the facial aesthetics, uh, I'd say the oral sur- surgery, I've ha- I had some friends that were in the city from dental school and I reconnected with a, with a, with a handful of them. So I had some influx through that. Um, and then the aesthetic stuff really is, it's kind of, you know, the type of thing where if you're able to utilize social media to share your cases and people can see the results and can see the thought process behind your surgeries, you know, through the comments that you make about it, um, then, then they kind of, you know, they kind of build themselves um, in a sense. So they were all very different, but I, I certainly don't just go around taking, you know, trying to cold call, other doctors or dentists or anyone to try to try to take people out for dinners and stuff. I, I work with a small group of specialists and general dentists and, and dental specialists that I like their mindset and their treatment philosophy. And that allows us to treat patients in a way where there's not a lot of friction and, and it's really good for the patient because the mentality and the philosophies are the same. Um, 
So that's really how I do it. Um, some people really throw big parties. They try to take people, you know, out to dinners and fancy uh, shows and sports games, and that's great, and that may work for them. But you know what I found is um, working with people that you like and that you think similarly to is really it's hard to beat that. You know, no no fancy restaurant is going to beat that, right? Right. Um, <laughs> yeah, definitely, definitely. In the IR world, how do you guys do it? Is it largely that you have to be hospital based to get the referral patterns, or? Yeah, so I mean, obviously, you can go the academic route, and you know, you have the referral base you know, built in there, especially on the inpatient side. Um, and then one of the challenges we face in IR is, you know, making people more aware of what we do or that we have, you know, less invasive options to, you know, a wide variety of pathology, but yeah. And then out in private practice, you know, there's these large groups out there that have usually contracts with like health systems, like, you know, like, uh, you have as well, similar to you in oral surgery. Um, but then also it's a lot of like, I think marketing to uh, primary care physicians getting, getting that. And then a lot of it's also, I've, from what I've heard is like a case, for example, we do is, is, um, prostate artery embolization for like benign prostatic hyperplasia. So it's a lot of like talking with urologists and kind of making them aware of that. Hey, we have this other option, you know, maybe we can work to like, kind of like what you're talking about with your colleagues, like, you know, instead of butting heads on this or competing for these cases, we can work together to, you know, do what's best for the patient in, in a lot of cases. So that's kind of, a cool thing that's evolved out of that. You should, uh, you know, I've used IR before for sphenopalatine pseudoaneurysm uh, coiling. Oh, wow. So um, you should reach out to some oral surgeons that do a bunch of jaw surgery because that might be, <laughs> <laughs> that might be a niche uh, for you, you know. That's really cool. I'd love to see one of those cases. That's awesome. Um, yeah. And, and then uh, some of the guys do uh, the feeding tubes. IR will place the feeding tubes through ultrasound. Um, oh, right, right, yeah. Yeah, we do it for a lot of, I've even just seen it now in my few years of training you know, for head and neck cases. We do a lot of like like G-tube uh, placements and things like that. We have a pretty good relationship with ENT and some of those surgeons here as well. We're going to take a quick break to let you know the DaVinci Hour podcast is brought to you by DaVinci Academy, which provides online video courses for the medical basic sciences. These courses are taught using a variety of teaching methods, including bullet point outlines, diagrams, radiology images, and chalk talks to explain the fundamental concepts. We then teach the application of those concepts to numerous clinical pearls that are frequently tested on medical school exams and the USMLE. Our video courses are available on our website, dviacademy.com, as monthly subscriptions starting at $9.99 per month. Each video course has a corresponding outline format textbook as well. You can find the link to our website in the description below. Also, be sure to use the discount code TDH20 to receive 20% off any of our video courses. All right, now back to the podcast. I think uh, you touched on uh, something I wanted to ask you about as well. Obviously, the, the one of the ways I came to know who you are is through your, you know, your large Instagram following and uh, you know, you post a lot of really interesting and, and cool and educational cases on your, on your, uh, Instagram account. I'm just curious, like how you guys started doing that and kind of what's, you know, a lot of people are starting to try to do that these days and how you've been able to so su successfully do that both for, and I'm, and I'm just curious how that's helped your practice. And then also if it's helped you kind of professionally in other ways as well. Uh, yeah, you know, it's, it kind of goes back to that time period around, 
2016-17 where I was kind of like in, in this like little bit of a the bridge behind, behind me was burnt in a sense like like I like I, I had no other option right so I started to really explore ways I knew I don't I don't want to sign that contract I don't want to work with that guy so w what am I going to do you know so I started to explore ways to really grow the practice and that's how the, the page started um you know, as far as the way I developed it, I, I honestly just started posting cases that I liked and that I was passionate about and I would talk about it. Um, and in the beginning, I remember some of the stuff because at the early stages, it was really, it was very heavy. If you look at the page and you go back, it's very heavy in the reconstruction stuff. And now it's evolved into a aesthetic, a largely aesthetic surgery page, um, you know, face and jaw aesthetics. But uh, I remember getting a lot of like com comments about this being too like graphic for social media. Um, but I, what I was building, I wasn't building a following of uh, general population. I wasn't building a following of lay people. I was building a following of colleagues, a following of colleagues. Um, and I think that's really important because I think that's really how, how it starts for us. Meaning I think the first thing we have to do is we have to get a certain respect from our colleagues. And then once you get that, that transitions into a, um, a I guess a respect or some degree of a, of a, uh, a you know, reputation amongst patients. But I think it has to start with, it has to start professionally, at least for the things that we do. Um, then I parlayed, I made the account a little bit more personal and started doing more like fitness stuff and working out and, and some kind of like family stuff. Um, and the following grew a lot, but it started to grow with what was probably more lay people. But what I found was that didn't really transition into successful practice. You know, in fact, maybe kind of the opposite. You know, if someone's spending too much time on social media, you know, how much time are they spending taking care of patients? Um, and I then parlayed it back into really, it's, you know, I share a little bit of my personal life, but very little. It's really largely educational about procedures that we perform and things like that. Um, and, you know, whether the following is, you know, whatever it is, it, it leaves a footprint for me. It's my, it's my, you know, it's almost like a, we're an artist and, and you know, if you're an artist and this is your exhibit, you have an exhibit that you could easily share with the community. Anyone who wants to look, look up your work and learn about you can access it very easily. It's much more easy to navigate than a website and much more easy to find people than a, than a website is. Um, so it ends up becoming almost like our exhibit, you know? And uh, I love to put these cases that I'm very passionate about it. I love, I love to put them on display and to share the, the, the details of it and, and you know, um, the nuances of it, I enjoy that. So whether I post something and everyone likes it or I post something and no one likes it, I don't really care that much about it. Obviously we want our work to be acknowledged. That feels good for everyone, but I don't care as much about it as, as I might have thought I would. I, I enjoy the process of creating the content and sharing uh, very much. No, that's awesome. And you know, thank you for providing such a great resource. Uh, I'm sure a lot of students have learned including myself more about, you know, what your field is and what you, what you're, what you're able to do. And, um, I think kind of what's the challenge, like I was talking about, you know, maybe is that, you know, when people think of oral surgery, they may not realize that you do all, you know, your practice is much more broader than, 
the traditional scope of oral surgery. So I think that um, is very insightful and informative as well. Yeah, I mean, well, that goes back to the training, though. You know, like University of Alabama uh, for for OMFF for oral surgery, it's it's a very it's you know probably the number one one two maybe maybe three program in the country. Very broad scope has had amazing people that develop the program. Uh, I'm actually lecturing at Peter Waits uh, retirement um, uh, event this weekend in Gulf Shores, and Peter Waite was uh, he was all facial surgeon chairman of the, of the residency program. And he was the first OMS to become president of the American Academy of Cosmetic Surgery. Patrick Lewis, the program director, has been involved and in, in head of every, every organization that we have. You know, they put out some, some of the most world-renowned surgeons. So what I am able to do is a result of the places that I went and the people that I've trained with. Um, you know, Baltimore for microvascular head and neck it's like, you know, under Bob Ord and Josh, Josh Lubeck, those guys are, you know, they're, they're uh, as good as they come, you know, in, in that field. They're never respected amongst anyone in head and neck, regardless if you're OMS or ENT or whatnot. And then to do a year with Dennis Krause, not even the same specialty, while he's president of American Head and Neck Society, you know, it, it's almost like a dream when I look back at it. They, these opportunities were just like, you know, it's, a, it, it's incredible that, that, uh, uh, that I was able to have them and I'm very grateful for them. But those are the reasons why the scope is what it is. You know, it's not like I just want to do something and I do it. I, I had these experiences, I did these, this training, I learned from these people and then I took what I learned and I cultivated it into something. Um, but, but it's really about finding the opportunities to get the skill set. It's not about just saying, I want to do this. You know, I want to do a heart transplant. And, you know, you have to learn how to do this stuff, uh, you know, because these, these are people, this isn't like, uh, this isn't, this isn't playtime, this isn't a video game, you know what I mean? These are people, you have to, you have to always remember that. But, um, yeah, I mean, it, it's really about finding the opportunities to get the training that you need. That's awesome. And I mean, you know, having amazing mentors like, like you had, I think is so critical. And I think you hit on a good point too. I think it's, you know, and I'm starting to learn this as I progress through training is that, you know, yeah, it's cool to think you want to try and do something, but I think getting those reps and get, and then learning from, like you said, like yourself, learning from the people that actually have established these procedures and these surgeries and things like that is, is so important for your, your own education. And, and, and then also building your credibility, I think going forward, probably. Yeah. It's like 10,000 hours, right? It's a, it's a real thing. Like, uh, Maxim, uh, Maxwell Gladwell, Maxwell, uh, Maxwell. Malcolm Gladwell, thank you. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so uh, yeah, I mean, it's about getting the, those reps in, and it's about you know when you when you spend time with really amazing people, even in a subconscious level, you take a lot from them, and you know even things you don't even realize, uh, even thought processes, processes, uh, which really correlates to judgment, which is probably the most important thing a surgeon can have, as important as hand skills. You know, as important as a critical eye, judgment judgment is is a, is is a cornerstone of what we do, and judgment can be learned. And the way you learn that is through experience of people that have wisdom, and people that have wisdom have it because they've seen many different scenarios. They have that experience, and that and they that's why they have that judgment. So 
you can make a whole bunch of mistakes and learn the hard way, or you can really spend time with with really uh, exceptional people and kind of you can gain a lot of uh, a lot of a lot of experience through them. Yeah. Gotcha. I'm curious. You know, uh, how did you seek these? You know, these opportunities out. Where was it? I guess what would be your advice for finding you know good mentors and learning from great people? Is it you know is it reputation? Is it talking to maybe people that you're currently you know learning from and talking yeah. with? Or I guess what's your I'm curious yeah. what your thoughts are on that. <laughs> there are things you can fake and things you can't fake, right? And uh, you have to have a general enthusiasm and a curiosity and excitement about your craft, right? You have to really be willing to do almost anything to be the best at it. Um, and that's palpable. And that's, people can see that. They can feel it when they're in the room with someone like that. Almost to the point where you're naive. You know, I spent you know, up until I was 36, I didn't even care. I was, I was a credit, I was, I was collecting student debt, you know, by, by the boatload. My student debt was insane. I couldn't care less. I didn't even think about it until my forbearance payments started kicking in, um, you know, but uh, when the deferment period ended, but uh, I was just so enthusiastic about it. I was willing to go to Alabama for the best residency. I was willing to go to Baltimore to, into one of the hardest fellowships. I was willing to do another fellowship, you know. So having that excitement, I think, is what gave me these opportunities. And because I think there was something about the excitement and the enthusiasm that I had that made these people say, you know what, I want to give this guy a chance. Um, so I, so I, I really believe it's that. Um, the other part of it is is a little bit of luck. You know, it's hard to it's hard to say that that's not an element. These opportunities just just opened up in, in some way as well, you know, particularly that last fellowship with Dennis. Um, I was fortunate enough that that spot was even still available, you know, and that they were willing to take someone of a different specialty. Uh, you know, I, my co-fellows were two facial plastics and, and a neurosurgeon, you know, we were all doing this fellowship. I was doing the head and neck cancer. One guy was doing the skull base. The other two were doing like this combined aesthetic, um, aesthetic and head and neck kind of rotation. Um, but they were, they took a chance on me, really, you know, uh, because coming, they, no one had done it from my background before, so they didn't know how that would work out. But uh, it worked out really well. So that's awesome. Um, I'm curious, you know, you do all these different types of cases. What are, what are some of the like? I guess either most gratifying or, or most uh, fun, if you will, I, uh, you know, or, or technically challenging that you enjoy doing out of, out of all the different cases that you do. Uh, you know, I've learned a while ago that, that people are driven by different things, right? Um, what, what I'm motivated by is outcome. I, I thoroughly enjoy seeing good outcomes, seeing great outcomes. I thoroughly enjoy looking at the pre and post-op photos and, and seeing the, the, even the minor details that are, that are beautiful and elegant and, and all that. So I think it's really the ones that have, that have the most meaningful outcomes. And lo- a large part of what I mean by that is visual, but also by how the patients, how their personality changes, how their, their confidence changes. So the surgeries that I find the most enjoyable are probably the ones where the outcomes are the most uh, significant that the outcome meaning someone has a really horrible deformity from something and you can give them this beautiful reconstruction and return them to feeling 
whole again and, and feel like they can face society or take someone who has been really self-conscious about a part of their face or their jaw, their neckline, and give them this really meaningful, beautiful, elegant, tasteful surgery. Um, that's what I enjoy the most. So uh, it's not one procedure um, that I enjoy the most, but it's really the, the procedures that have the greatest outcome. Um, most of those happen to be like the double jaw surgeries, the aesthetic chin and jawline surgeries, the uh, reconstructive surgeries for like facial defects, whether it's cancer or, or trauma. Um, those things where you see the greatest, the, the most, the most uh, significant outcome. I'm curious, do you, what types of, uh, you know, there's obviously a lot of, you know, there's lots of, a lot of science in what you do, but there's also, I imagine, a lot of art in what you do and, and craftsmanship what do you, what types of, do you use like software or things like that to prepare for your cases? I think I've seen some pictures you've posted on something like the 3d models you've, you've made it, I guess, what kind of all goes into, into some of these cases and what kind of interesting tools do you use for that? Yeah. So it's, so it's funny. So interventional radiology is probably like 80 degree, 80% science, 20% art, if you will. Right. Meaning. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and if you do things right, most of the time you stay out of trouble. And maybe 20% of the time you have to be a little creative. Vessel has a little branch that you need to find a way in, things like that, right? Um, I, with my type of surgery, it's probably 80% art, 20% science. Meaning there's certain things you have to do and you have to make sure you do, you do properly or you're gonna have a problem, but 80% of it is judgment. It, there's no, you know, you can read the textbooks and you can learn certain things, but a lot of it is really aesthetic judgment. Um, and, uh, and the way that I do, the way that I do it is uh, I sit down with a patient, we, we have a consultation, I listen, I do most of the, most of the first consultation I'm listening. I want to know, I want to understand what their thoughts are. And I also want to understand what their uh, expectations and, and knowledge is, right? So I'm listening. Towards the end of that consult, we do photographs, we take photographs. Uh, we take a CT scan in my office. I have a CT scanner for three-dimensional soft tissue and bone imaging. Um, I look at these things. I do a, a sketch of them with them. I do it right chair side. Um, and I show them the things that I think make sense aesthetically and functionally and that are safe. Uh, safe in terms of a safe movement of part of the facial bones. Um, they... I ask them for their input and their thoughts. Most of the time, patients are very happy with that sketch. And I, you know, with all the listening and with my own assessment, I'm pretty good at being able to nail down what they're looking for uh, with that. Sometimes we modify it. From that, I use the CAT scan that takes both bone and skin imaging, and I can do bone surgery on them or implant surgery on them, facial implant surgery. Um, and I can get soft tissue predictions of what they'll look like, kind of, all right? My sketches tend to be more accurate than the soft tissue predictions, just because the computers are very good at being able to predict how bones will move because there's a solid structures, but skin, fat, muscle, the way that moves as the bone structures change, it's not so good. Um, so I use the combination of both to really come to a treatment plan. Uh, once I agree on a movement or once I, I, I am happy with a certain movement of facial bones or, or a structure of implants of like chin or jawline or something like that or cheek, um, 
I accept it and they mail, the company will mail me uh, the custom materials, meaning custom cutting guides, custom uh, plates and screws, custom implants. So it's everything I do is specific for those patients. I don't do any non-custom work. I stopped doing it years ago because the outcomes just are not as good. Um, and, uh, and that's really how we do it. So that's awesome. I mean, it, it's amazing how much goes into each and every case. That's, um, that's pretty cool. And I'm, I'm, it's cool to hear that you use, uh, imaging as well as, as a radiologist in training. Uh, that's, that's cool that you use, uh, imaging as part of that as well. Um, kind of a segueing a little bit as we close things out here, you know, obviously it's also clear on your page that, uh, you know, obviously you maintain personal fitness, like you mentioned, I guess, what's your advice for that? You know, you did a lot of years as training and, you know, as you know, it's, it, you only have so many hours in the day as a trainee. And then even as a yourself, as a practicing physician, is it a matter of just making it a priority or, or I guess, what, what is your advice on that? I'm curious. Uh, so first thing is don't get injured. Right? Don't get, try not to get injured uh, because that, that sets you back and that, that, you know, if you're if being fit is important to you and you have an injury, it, it really messes with your life a lot. So do your best not to get injured. Um, as far as making it, a, yeah, you have to make it a priority. It has to be a lifestyle. Um, you have to be uncomfortable if you don't get to, to move, if you don't move your body that day. It, you have to, it has to bother you at night. Um, you know, that, that's really just the, the, the only way because there are days that you are just going to be too tired and it's so easy to rationalize not, not uh, exercising. But, you know, that's, that, will, that will show. Uh, it's like anything else, right? It's about, the, it's about getting the reps in, like you said earlier. Um, when I was an intern at Alabama during that first internship, internship the first year, our, our intern year, it, it was a really, really busy year. It was probably the hardest year. It was harder than the general surgery internship. It was, you know, as hard as the fellowship in Baltimore, if not harder in terms of hours. Um, and my body just deconditioned. It was probably the worst shape I was ever in. And I remember trying to get back in shape oh, in the later years. It, just, it was just hard, you know, because you sleep deprived, you were eating crap all year just to keep your, try and keep your energy levels up, right? Um, and the amount of stress, you're running on like stress hormones for the whole year. Uh, and it, it, it's really hard to get out of that rut. So, you know, once you get out of that rut, stay out, keep the routine, even if you're tired, do something, even if it's just stretching or rolling on a, on a, foam, a foam roll, do something, and then also try not to get injured because that also gets you in that rut. Uh, it's hard to get out of. Um, so that's what I'd say. I'd say uh, try to find a routine, whether it's morning or, or night workouts. You know, I think both are fine. If you can, if you can work out in the morning, it's clearly the best. All the evidence shows that. But if the best time to work out is the time that you can do that, you can get to the gym predictably. Um, and I'd say, you know. Some people say, like, should I do, like, hobbies or should I do a sport? And that's fine. That's fun. Um, and if that works for you, that's fine. But, you know, it's really, it's really hard to develop your body in a way that you need to for these kinds of careers that we have um, and strengthen the core muscles. And, and it's really hard to do that in most sports. Like, you'll get a good cardiovascular workout playing basketball, but you're not going to strengthen your core the same way. You're not going to protect your 
your back and your shoulder muscles and your neck the same way. So you have to do some form of strength training, whether it's like Pilates, yoga, reasonable weights, uh, calisthenics. Um, so I really urge people to get into some form of that, a resistance training of some sort. It's more valuable than a sport, even though sports are fun and important as well. It's interesting you bring that up, you know, the doing it not only just for your own personal fitness and health, but also for your uh, ability to do your job and, you know, probably get less fatigued. And then all these, obviously also longevity. I mean, like yourself and our procedures we're using, you know, wearing lead a lot of times, which is a lot of, you know, you know yeah, yeah, exactly. And standing for long periods of time and things like that. So that's, I think that's a really excellent point you made. Um, I guess if you noticed, you know, you had that year where you of intern year where you were, you know, obviously, and I can emphasize, I did intern year and at a county hospital is very, very busy. And I was probably all, likewise in some of the worst shape I've been in. Um, and then getting back, did you notice you better able to do your job as a surgeon after getting kind of getting back into shape that you wanted? Yeah, clearly. I mean, in every round, you don't, you can focus longer, you don't fatigue as much, you're more comfortable while you're operating. Um, yeah, it, it's, you need to maintain physical health. Yeah. Gotcha. And then my, I guess my last question is, is beyond just uh, fitness, what do you do outside of your work to unwind and, and kind of, you know, give yourself that mental break from all of that? <laughs> yeah, you know, uh, in many ways, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty simple. You know, I don't need a lot. Uh, I'm very content with, uh, with, as the Japanese, what is a ikigai, the, the, the one thing, right? I'm very mm -hmm. content pursuing one thing to be as good as, great as I could be. I want to be as good as I could possibly be at something. Um, so I don't need like a bunch of different hobbies. Um, what I do like to do is I do like to spend time with my family, loved ones. Uh, I, I have a dog. I adore my dog. He's, he's great. Um, I spend time with him, you know, we play frisbee in the park, things like that. Um, and then, you know, I like Formula One, uh, but other than that, I don't, I don't follow a lot of sports. I always found them to be, for me, I felt like they were a bit of a time suck. I'd be watching like a basketball game and I'd be like, I really want to work on this on this case that I have coming up. And, you know, I think about that, my mind would be straying. So I like that. That's my balance. My balance is in balance, you know, and I'm happy that way. Um, but that's not everybody. So, um, you know, I don't need that much outside to decompress because my, my work is in many ways, my decompression. It's kind of crazy because it's my stress and it's also my escape at the same time. Um, but you know, that's, that's part of why I love it. You know? Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah, no, I can definitely understand that. I think as I was telling you before we started recording, I am at the top of my clinical training. I balance my life with a lot of other you know, professional endeavors with, you know, this and device uh, development and things like that. So I, I totally get where you're coming from yeah, on that. I can see that, that you, I can see you going down those rabbit holes of, of stuff. That's pretty impressive. What, what, what were you saying the device uh, company you were developing was? Yeah. So the one we've developed a catheter device and then um, like a balloon catheter device for navigating more tortuous anatomy. And then uh, we're working on uh, some sensor technology for stent graphs interesting so that's the art that's the artistic side of it for sure yeah yeah definitely it's it's like you said it's you know it's so regimented and regulated and you know there's the steps of the procedure or whatnot or the clinical algorithm but i find the outlet like you said that create i have a creative side to me and that's that's i think like you it's interesting you point that out that's kind of where i get that outlet from 
Well, thanks again for joining us uh, and telling your story and, and your advice. Really appreciate it. And I know you're really busy and appreciate you taking time out. Uh, lastly, like how, how can people uh, find you? I know you, you already have a huge following, but if, if new people want to follow you, where, what's the best way for them to find you? So, uh, so Instagram's the best. That's the platform. That's really the only platform I use other than our website. And that's uh, doctor spelled out D-O-C-T-O-R dot Hannah, H-A-N-N-A. As in okay. Last name. Um, and yeah, anyone who, who has questions, you know, uh, send, send us a message. I'll, I'll get back to whatever I can. Awesome. Well, thank you, Dr. Hannah. We really appreciate your time and insight. All right. Well, thank you, Max. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Da Vinci Hour brought to you by Da Vinci Academy. More episodes are available on our website at dviacademy.com, our YouTube channel. They're also available on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Also on our website, you can find our video courses for anatomy, biochemistry, and histology, and they're available as month-to-month packages. They're also available as a combo package where you can get all three courses in one. Our website also has a store where you can find our outline format textbooks for anatomy, biochemistry, and histology. All textbooks are available in paperback version and as ebooks as well. These textbooks complement our video courses and provide a nice addition to the learning experience of allowing you to focus on the learning and not having to write anything down. On our website, we also provide a free clinical cases video series called Da Vinci Cases. Da Vinci Cases aims to help you learn how to answer USMLE questions and apply concepts that you learn in our courses to answering those questions. Our cases cover a variety of topics and organ systems, and they're updated frequently with new cases. And then lastly on our website, you can find our blog, which has interesting articles that cover medical history, important figures in medicine, and innovations in medicine. Again, thank you for listening to this episode of the Da Vinci Hour, brought to you by Da Vinci Academy. Please be sure to tune in for our next episode.